Chapter One of the Railway Builders. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Foster. The Railway Builders: A Chronicle of Overland Highways by Oscar D. Skelton. Chapter One: The Coming of the Railway. On the morning of October 6, 1829, there began at Rainhill in England a contest without parallel in either sport or industry. There were four entries Braithwaite and Erickson's Novelty, Timothy Hackworth's San Parai, Stevenson and Booth's Rocket, and Burstall's Perseverance. These were neither racehorses nor stagecoaches, but rival types of the newly invented steam locomotive. To win the five hundred pound prize offered, the successful engine, if weighing six tons, must be able to draw a load of twenty tons at ten miles an hour, and to cover at least seventy miles a day. Little wonder that an eminent Liverpool merchant declared that only a parcel of charlatans could have devised such a test, and wagered that if a locomotive ever went ten miles an hour, he would eat a stewed engine wheel for breakfast. The contest had come about as the only solution of a deadlock between the stubborn directors of the Liverpool and Manchester Railway, or Tramway, then under construction, and their still more stubborn engineer, one George Stevenson. The railway was nearly completed, and the essential question of the motive power to be used had not yet been decided. The most conservative authorities thought it best to stick to the horse. Others favored the use of stationary steam engines, placed every mile or two along the route, and hauling the cars from one station to the next by long ropes. Stevenson, with a few backers, urged a trial of the locomotive. True, on the Stockton and Darlington Railway, the first successful public line ever built, opened four years before, a traveling engine built by the same dogged engineer had hauled a train of some forty light carriages, nearly nine miles in sixty-five minutes and had even beaten a stagecoach running on the highway alongside by a hundred yards in the twelve miles from Darlington to Stockton. But even here the locomotive was only used to haul freight. Passengers were still carried in old stagecoaches, which were mounted on special wheels to fit the rails, and were drawn by horses. The best practical engineers in England, when called into consultation, inspected the Stockton Road, and then advised the perplexed directors to install twenty-one stationary engines along the thirty-one miles of track, rather than to experiment with the new travelling engine. What can be more palpably absurd and ridiculous, the Quarterly Review had declared in 1825, than the prospect held out of locomotives travelling twice as fast as stagecoaches? We should as soon expect the people of Woolwich to suffer themselves to be fired off upon one of Congreve's ricochet rockets as trust themselves to the mercy of such a machine going at such a rate. And the Quarterly was not alone in its scepticism. The directors of the new railway had found great difficulty in obtaining a charter from Parliament, a difficulty registered in a bill for parliamentary costs reaching £27,000, or over $4,000 a mile. Canal proprietors and toll-road companies had declaimed against the attack on vested rights. Country squires had spluttered over the damage to fox covers. Horses could not plough in neighbouring fields. Widows' strawberry beds would be ruined. What would become of coachmen and coach-builders and horse-dealers? Or, suppose a cow were to stray upon the line, would not that be a very awkward circumstance? queried a committee member only to give Stevenson an opening for the classic reply in his slow Northumbrian speech, Aye, very awkward for the coup. And not only would the locomotive as it shot along do such varied damage, in truth it would not go at all. The wheels, declared eminent experts, would not grip on the smooth rails or else the engines would prove top-heavy. To decide the matter, the directors had offered the prize which brought together the novelty, the San Perillo, the rocket, and the perseverance, engines which would look almost as strange to a modern crowd as they did to the thousands of spectators drawn up along the track on that momentous morning. 
The contest was soon decided. The novelty and ingenious engine, but not substantially built, broke down twice. The San Parai proved wasteful of coal and also met with an accident. The Perseverance, for all its efforts, could do no better than five or six miles an hour. The rocket alone met all requirements. In a seventy-mile run it averaged fifteen miles an hour and reached a maximum of twenty-nine. Years afterwards, when scrapped to a colliery, the veteran engine was still able, in an emergency, to make four miles in four and a half minutes. Truly, declared Cropper, one of the directors who had stood out for the stationary engine and the miles of rope, now has George Stevenson at last delivered himself. Stevenson had the good fortune, he had earned it indeed, to put the top brick on the wall, and he alone lives in popular memory. But the railway, like most other great inventions, came about by the toil of hundreds of known and unknown workers, each adding his little or great advance, until at last some genius or some plotter standing on their failures could reach success. Both the characteristic features of the modern railway, the iron road, and the steam motive power developed gradually as necessity urged and groping experiment permitted. The iron road came first. When men began to mine coal in the north of England, the need grew clear of better highways to bear the heavy cartloads to market a riverside. About 1630, one master Beaumont laid down broad wooden rails near Newcastle on which a single horse could haul fifty or sixty bushels of coal. The new device spread rapidly through the whole Tyneside coalfield. A century later it became the custom to nail thin strips of wrought iron to the wooden rails, and about 1767 cast iron rails were first used. Carr, a Sheffield colliery manager, invented a flanged rail, while Jessop, another colliery engineer, took the other line by using flat rails but flanged cartwheels. The outburst of canal building in the last quarter of the 18th century overshadowed for a time the growth of the Iron Road, but it soon became clear that the tramway was necessary to supplement, if not to complete, the canal. In 1801 the first public line, the Surrey Iron Railway, was chartered, but it was not until 1825 that the success of the Stockton and Darlington Railway proved that the Iron Way could be made as useful to the general shipping public as to the colliery owner. At the outset this road was regarded as only a special sort of toll road upon which any carrier might transport goods or passengers in his own vehicles, but experience speedily made it necessary for the company to undertake the complete service. It took longer to find the new mode of power, but this too first came into practical use in the land where peace and liberty gave industry the fostering care which the war-rent continent could never guarantee. Nowadays it seems a simple thing to turn heat energy into mechanical energy, to utilize the familiar expansive power of water heated to vapor. Yet centuries of experiment, slowly acquired mechanical dexterity, and an industrial atmosphere were needed for the development of the steam engine, and later of the locomotive. Inventiveness was not lacking in the earlier days. In the second century before Christ, Hero of Alexandria had devised steam fountains and steam turbines but they remained scientific toys, unless for the miracle-working purposes to which legend says that Eastern priests adapted them. So, in the seventeenth century, when the Norman Solomon de Caz claimed that, with the vapor of boiling water, he could move carriages and navigate ships, Cardinal Richelieu had him put in prison as a madman. About 1628, an Italian, Giovanni Branca, invented an engine which had the essential features of the modern turbine, but his crude apparatus lacked efficiency. Once more, the coal mines of England set invention working on a definite, continuous object. As the shafts were sunk to lower and lower levels, it became impossible to pump the water out of the mines by horsepower, and the aid of steam was sought. Just at the close of the 17th century, Savory devised the first commercial steam engine, or rather, steam fountain, which applied cold water to the outside of the cylinder to condense the steam inside and produce a vacuum. 
while Pepin, one of the Huguenot refugees to whom industrial England owed so much, planned the first cylinder and piston engine. Then in 1705, Newcomen and Colley, working with Savory, took up Pepin's idea, separated boiler from cylinder, and thus produced a vacuum into which atmospheric pressure forced the piston and worked the pump. Next, Humphrey Potter, a youngster hired to open and shut the valves of a Newcomen engine, made itself acting by tying cords to the engine beam, had his hour for play or idling, and proved that if necessity is the mother of invention, laziness is sometimes its father. Half a century passed without material advance, even as perfected in detail by Smeaton, the Newcomen engine required 35 pounds of coal to produce one horsepower per hour, as against one pound today. Then James Watt, instrument maker in Glasgow, seeing that too much of the waste of steam was due to the alternate chilling and heating of the cylinder, added a separate condenser in which to do the chilling, and kept the temperature of the cylinder uniform by applying a steam jacket. Later, by applying steam in a vacuum to each side of the piston alternately, and by other improvements, Watt, with his partner Bolton, brought the reciprocating steam engine to a high stage of efficiency. It took fifty years longer to combine the steam engine and the rail. French and American inventors devised steam carriages which came to nothing. England again led the way. At Redruth and Cornwall, Bolton and Watt had a branch for the erection of stationary engines in Cornish tin mines, in charge of William Murdoch, later known as inventor of the system of lighting by gas. Murdoch devised a steam carriage to run upon the ordinary highway, but was discouraged by his employers from perfecting the machine. Another mechanic at Redruth, Richard Trevithick, captain in a tin mine, took up the torch, built a dragon for use on the common highway, but was baffled by the hopeless badness of the roads, and turned to making a locomotive for use on the ironways of the Welsh collieries. Two years later, in 1803, he had constructed an ingenious engine which could haul a ten-ton load five miles an hour, but the engine jolted the road to pieces, and the versatile inventor was diverted to other schemes. Blenkinsop of Leeds in 1812 had an engine built with a toothed wheel working in a racked rail, which did years of good service. And next year at Wylam on the Tyne, a colliery owner, Blackett, had the Puffing Billy built, and proved that smooth wheels would grip smooth rails. Still another year, and an engine right in a Tyneside colliery, George Stevenson, himself born at Wylam, devised the Blucher, doubling effectiveness by turning the exhaust steam into the chimney to create a strong draft. Using this steam blast and adopting the multi-tubular boiler from a French inventor, Sagan, Stevenson finally scored a triumph, due not so much to unparalleled genius as to dogged perseverance in working out his own ideas and in adapting the ideas of other men. Thus by slow steps the steam railway had come. It was a necessity of the age. Crude means of transport might serve the need of earlier days when each district was self-contained and self-sufficing. But now the small workshop and the craftsman's tool were giving way to the huge factory and the power-driven machine. The division of labor was growing more complex. Each district was becoming more dependent on others for markets in which to buy and to sell. Traffic was multiplying. The Industrial Revolution brought the railway, and the railway quickened the pace of the Industrial Revolution. To some critics, as to Ruskin, railways have appeared the loathsomest form of deviltry now extant, animated and deliberate earthquakes, destructive of all nice social habits or possible natural beauty. Animated and deliberate earthquakes they were indeed to prove, transforming social and industrial and political structures the world over. With the telegraph and the telephone, they greatly widened the scope and quickened the pace of business operations, making it possible, and therefore necessary, for the captain of industry or finance of the twentieth century to have under control ten times the press of affairs which occupied his eighteenth-century forerunner. The railway leveled prices and leveled manners. 
It enabled floods of settlers to sweep into all the waste places of the earth, clamped far-flung nations into unity, and bound country to country. Nowhere was the part played so momentous as in the vast spaces of the North American continent, and not least in the northern half. The railway found Canada scarcely a geographical expression, and made it a nation. End of chapter 1